0: Buddy, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We have gotten a wonderful interview today, very informative. Uh, We're talking with David Reese from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We've got him back on the show. So glad to have him back. Last time we talked to him about the Section 702 of the FISA Act. Uh, And today we're talking again about surveillance stuff, mass surveillance and a big defeat uh, in a bill that was tacked on to the must-pass omnibus spending bill last week. Uh, tacked on at the last minute, it was never reviewed, never, uh, had hearings in Congress. Uh, just railroaded through and it's really bad for privacy laws, unfortunately. And we're going to dig right in right now and jump right into it. I know it sounds a little boring, but this is very, very important. And so I encourage you to, to check this out. And after you're done, send this off to your friends too. This is the kind of stuff we all need to be aware of. I'm sure this was totally passed over in the mainstream media. Um... And honestly, it was tacked onto a 2,200-page bill that probably nobody read, and uh, it just went basically unnoticed, except by us. So here we go. Without further ado, let's uh, let's dig into this with David Reese. All right, and today, as promised, we are talking with David Reese. He's a writer uh, covering the NSA surveillance and federal surveillance policy for the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights nonprofit that we've mentioned many, many times on this show. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Carrie. It's good to be back.
0: So last time we talked, uh, we discussed the renewal of the Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or the FISA Act, um, which was unfortunately passed about two months ago and signed by the president. And just last Mm -hmm. week, Congress passed the Clarifying Overseas Use of Global Data Act, uh, the Cloud Act, which was tacked onto the must-pass $1.3 trillion, I think, omnibus budget bill. Yeah. At the, la- the very last minute, it was tacked on. And of course, the president signed that into law too, to avoid a government shutdown. So anyway, today, unfortunately, we're going to talk about what that means for us, uh, for civil liberties and privacy, and not just in the US, but around the world. So this has got mm-hmm. major implications. Uh, before we dive into the minutiae of all that, though, uh, as always, yeah. I like to kind of level set the audience and let's define some key terms. And let's talk a little bit about how we got here. So Obviously, the founders didn't have to deal with digital privacy back in the day. Um, so we've, you know, obviously since added laws and things around these things. And it, this probably all started, what, in the 70s, I guess, with the uh, Email Communications yeah. Privacy Act?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we can go back, uh, actually, to 1974, one of the first laws uh, that I'm aware of, uh, just called Blandly, you know, the Privacy Act of 1974. And it's a pretty straightforward thing, um, but it's very novel in that it, uh, it introduces Kind of what data could be and why data is important, uh, and it's uh, that Privacy Act of 1974 is just um, it's it kind of governs uh, what we now call personally identifiable information. Mm. These are things like your name, your address, your social security number, absolutely. Uh, and sometimes when those things can be tied together, uh, you know, cross referencing them, can can people find out who you are just using that data? And that's a that that bill that law just says, hey, look. Um, Personally identifiable information that is maintained or held by governments uh, by their records, it's got to be protected. And there's some loopholes, uh, there's quite a few. There's like 12 circumstances in that law hmm. where uh, where data will be treated uh, with like exceptions. Um, but it, it does introduce way back in 1974. Again, there's there's pieces of information that if tied together uh, could reveal who you are, and and those should be protected. Um, and then. What you said here, this uh, Electronic uh, Communications Privacy Act, uh, that's a big—that's a big thing that we reference uh, repeatedly, and it's—it's uh, it's big because it's got a lot of parts to it, and it's also amended a couple of things. And the best way to think about it uh, is this: this Act here, again, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, uh, which a lot of people call ECBA, E-C-P-A. Mm. Uh It it changed how wiretaps are done, how the government performs wiretaps, and it also changed. Uh, how we think about electronic records that are stored versus electronic records that move around, and the best way to think about it is that is uh, things that you have, like on your computer, just files uh, that are just at rest, you know, on the hard disk mm-hmm. uh, on that drive, versus text messages or chat messages, or you know, going way back to when this law was passed, phone calls, you know, moving data, phone calls, uh, people to people, and um, that. That act uh, still is uh, still is being used today, and again, it it kind of separated how the government is able to listen in on conversations happening at that time. So, data that is moving, and it also changed uh, how government is able to access data that is stored. Uh, again, we keep referring to that Stored Communications Act, uh, and believe it or not, it also did one more thing. Uh, it Brought up this idea of what we now refer to as metadata. Um, metadata yeah. is the yeah, it's um, you know, it's not the it's not the words in your emails. It's the time your email was sent, and it's not the conversation that is happening on your phone call. It's the phone number that you dialed, and believe it or not, uh, it's actually the location that happens uh, in your cell phone, your GPS tracking. Uh, that is a uh, currently. Several courts believe that that uh, that's metadata, that that is not content. And so, uh, again, this Electronic Communications Privacy Act, ECPA, uh, still around today, and it it kind of bifurcated a lot of the ways that data is stored. Uh, A good thing to remember is that the U.S., uh, astoundingly, does not have a single overarching data privacy law. It has many, many data Hmm. privacy laws that differ as we said, based on moving or at rest, or content versus metadata, and then really drills down. Actually, and we don't need to get into it, but things like subscriber info, uh, like uh, if you sign up for cable subscription services, you know what? Who does that data belong to, and, and can it be retrieved with a warrant or with a subpoena or with uh, uh, what kind of uh, legal standard needs to be met? So again, we have a panoply, uh, this patch, this patchwork of laws that um is for my understanding, we're one of the few countries that does not have an overarching data privacy law.
0: And there's, and there are all sorts of just really weird things with these. Like, for example, I remember, and I'm not sure what the current state of this is, but I recall at one point, uh, email can emails were, were different because they were held on third party servers. And because they were held on third party servers, It's like uh, something like after a certain amount of time, six months or something, it was there was no longer any expectation of privacy because you've, quote, unquote, abandoned it.
1: Uh, Yeah, this is a excellent point to bring up Um, email. uh, The way that the government can access emails uh, or request them uh, is different based exactly on what you said, uh, whether or not that email is over 180 days old or younger, I guess you could say, than 180 days old and also uh, whether or not that email was ever opened by you, like the recipient, um, hmm. I—I'll be honest, I don't know the exact drill down of um, what those differences are. But yes, you're—you're you're absolutely right. There's, there's a difference between if the government wants to access an email that is more than six months old or an email that is less than six months old. And yeah, that's where that's where we really get down into the like, this this minutia, you know, of data privacy, and uh, it's so hard to uh, really you know, look at it in a totality because there's always seems to be another exception to another exception to another exception. And it's on things that I think practically, you know, you and I and most people would never think about. Most people would never think, oh, obviously we're going to make a law about uh, 180 days being a cutoff for someone wanting to retrieve an email. That doesn't make any sense to me, to be perfectly honest. And I don't really know why we have that idea and where we got it from. You know, there's no, there's no thing where it's like, you tell the common person and say, oh yeah, well, we all know that obviously after 180 days, email becomes
0: something (laughs) magically different. Right. And so this, this law has a lot to do with foreign surveillance and foreign law enforcement, uh, the cloud act. Um, Mm -hmm. So Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how things operate when we start going across borders and, and then bring us into the the now with what, how the Cloud Act addresses some of these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, again, kind of a working with understanding where, where foreign governments come in, uh, there's this whole different system we have. And it's called the Mutual Legal Assistance System, and it's set up by treaties. So for short, mutual, mutual Legal Assistance Treaties, or MLATs, is what they're commonly referred to. And MLATs are actually a pretty normal, common sense way to approach uh, what has been happening recently, which is that sometimes your email uh, or your Facebook profile doesn't really live in Palo Alto you know, with Facebook, um, and it doesn't really live in Mountain View with Google. Uh, it lives on servers that are across the world. Uh, your social media profile could be in Sweden. Uh, your, you know, ride-hailing uh, apps—they connect to servers that are almost in, I think, every continent in the world. Uh, it could be in Belgium. It could be in Berkeley, you know, California. Mm. And so, essentially, what that means is sometimes uh, the U.S. police will want to uh, obtain an email, and they'll go to Microsoft for example, which is a real example, something that is happening. And Microsoft says, hey, this email is actually in Ireland. What happens or what is supposed to happen in the MLAT process is that the U.S. police would follow the data privacy laws of the U.S. and also the data privacy laws of Ireland. Uh, it's this kind of coming together of both laws. And that's because uh, that data is being treated, treated as information, as something that exists in Ireland. So, you know, we can't just go, Saying, hey, we have a U.S. warrant, and we go barge into someone's home in Ireland Hmm. and say, hey, this U.S. warrant applies. Uh, The MLAT MLAT system says, no, we have to abide by both countries' laws. And that works as well when foreign governments come to uh, the U.S. and say, hey, we want information, again, that is stored in the United States. The MLAT process says, okay, that's fine, we understand. Uh, You have to abide by U.S. standards. And typically that means... Uh, abiding by the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and that's what the MLAT process is. It's a good system. It uh, upholds privacy. Uh, in fact, it's it's very focused on privacy because and, and the rule of law because it says hey, we have to meet both rules of law or, or whichever is best at the time. And the Cloud Act bypasses that entire system. Hmm. Uh, it. It it erodes the privacy protections that have been carefully created in this system, in the MLAT process, the MLAT system. And it creates a new channel, uh, an entirely new channel, for how both United States police and police outside the United States, uh, police in Ireland, police in Belgium, police in Mexico, whatever you want to think, how they obtain data that is not within their own countries. And to get into it, Uh, The Cloud Act makes a new system where essentially these police can ask US companies, uh, these are your Microsofts, your Googles, your Facebooks, uh, your Slacks, they can ask them directly for data that is stored overseas and it starts to change whether that data belongs to a US person or whether it doesn't belong to a US person. if we've got time, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's dig in because some of these things are mind-blowing when you look at these at the details. So it only applies to – let me get this straight. So a foreign country wants to get access to data o- owned by a U.S. company but only when mm-hmm. the data is not held inside the U.S. Or does it, does it apply if it's held in the U.S. as well?
1: Yeah, okay. So let's go through that example. Yeah, let's say um, a foreign government wants to – exactly like you said. They want data that is owned by a U.S. company. Um, for just that first layer right there, what the Cloud Act proposes here is that we're going to now enter into these things called executive agreements. And executive agreements are this new data delivery process. That's what an executive agreement is. And the way those are agreed to is actually unilaterally by the executive, by, by the U.S., by both the Attorney General and the Secretary of State. And so The attorney general and the secretary of state can say, hey, we want to have a data transfer agreement, an executive agreement with uh, London, uh, with the UK, which makes sense. They're a political partner. Uh, They're an obvious choice for uh, a country that would probably also want to have an executive agreement with the United States. And there's a list of factors for how that works. And some of them are, are they a known human rights abuser? Uh, Do they have good data privacy protection laws? But once that's all settled, let's say there now is an executive agreement, and the way it works is, a good hypothetical here, is that uh, London police suspect that they have a Londoner who uh, is guilty of bank fraud. Let's take a a not-sexy crime here. (laughs) And uh, the London police go to Slack company and they say, hey Slack, we want this Londoner's messages. Again, a London resident. They're looking specifically for that. They wanna they want the Slack messages that this London uh, resident sent and received uh, because they want that evidence. They want to say, they want to see if these Slack messages uh, actually show any evidence of this of this bank fraud. Slack in that case because this executive agreement has already been uh, codified, well, not codified, sorry, has already been agreed to, um, Slack has to do it. Slack has to give over the, uh, the data. And this is interesting because the London police are coming to a U.S. company that is based on U.S. soil, and they are demanding information while not abiding by U.S. laws at any given moment. Wow. Um, there, is no, there is no conversation about the Fourth Amendment. In this new data delivery request, there no, is no. No U.S. warrant required. No U.S. warrant required. And there also is no uh, prior individualized judicial review, which is to say, there's no judge who is looking at this data request before it happens based on a single person. There's no judge saying, okay, person A, yeah, I sign off on that. I give it a check mark. Person B, I sign off on that. I give it a check mark. There's no, again, individualized. Judicial review before the data request happens, which is not how things happen uh, mostly in the United States. Uh, you don't get search warrants here in the United States for, or you're not supposed to get search warrants <laughs> here in the United States for just, you know, a whole bunch of people that we think might be uh, suspected of a crime. You get search warrants for individual people, individuals right. who are suspected of crimes. The Cloud Act does away with that. It's that simple. Um, and then the other half of the bill is, uh, is actually U.S. police now have greater power to uh, do that example I gave before, that Microsoft has emails that are stored in Ireland, and Microsoft's like, hey, we got to obey Ireland's data protection laws as well. The Cloud Act says, no, no, you don't. Uh, the Cloud Act gets rid of that system. The Cloud Act says in a sort of way, hey, West is best. Uh, the U.S. warrant applies. You're a U.S. company. We're U.S. law enforcement. Here's a U.S. warrant. We don't, uh, we don't really care if this, uh, this data is stored somewhere else. Um, you own the data, so you should be compelled to give it over. And we should have the right to ask for a search warrant that would compel you to give it over. Um, it's Again, it's, it's eroding privacy protections. That exist when countries work together. Uh, it, it it erodes that that coming together uh, of data privacy protection, and it's it's very dangerous for that.
0: Wow. Okay. So I got a whole bunch of questions. So <laughs> uh, okay. So in that scenario. The Londoner is a, is a Slack user, which is a communications tool, um, mm-hmm. a collaboration tool, which includes messaging. So he's been messaging somebody, and he's suspected of a of a financial crime. The company, however, is a U.S. company, so the, now the London law enforcement's come to the to Slack, which the U.S. company said to hand this over. According to this, now would we have had to have been in an executive agreement for that to. We have to be an executive, executive agreement yeah. for that to work, right? What about the reverse? Yeah. So the case, the other case you talked about, where U.S. law enforcement wants mm-hmm. information on a U.S. citizen from U.S. company, but for whatever reason, that data—the actual hard drive that contains the guy's messages—is in mm-hmm. Ireland or some other country. Because that data exists in another country, do we not still have to abide by the other country's privacy laws, or does that <laughs> where the executive agreement comes in again? Of we have to have that agreement in place for this to work.
1: Yeah, excellent question, actually. Um, Because the Cloud Act uh, refers to these companies as uh, qualifying foreign governments. And that's a a very Bill speak way to say, (laughs) yes, the executive agreement does apply. Uh, From my understanding, uh, in this case where, you know, the, the whole Ireland thing, Ireland would also have to have an executive agreement. So it sort of creates an incentive for the U.S., to have as many executive agreements as possible, particularly in areas where they know that tech companies are storing data. Uh, Ireland, as we have seen recently, in the past I'd say maybe eight years, is sort of a hotbed for storing and storing data and creating uh, new headquarters. You know, Facebook is has a headquarters in Ireland yeah, and I Microsoft. A- Apple does, does
0: too, it's that weird financial tax mm-hmm. thing, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I can't speak affirmatively to knowing whether or not those headquarters are also used as data centers, but clearly it's already happening with Microsoft on Ireland. I imagine it would be one that, I imagine Ireland would be an attractive company, uh, so to speak, for the U.S. to enter an executive
0: agreement with. So... Okay. Wow. So, okay. So <laughs> I know so many questions. There's, there's this notion of, and this always sounds like spy novels when I, when I, when I read mm-hmm. these names, but there's the five eyes and the nine eyes and the 14 mm-hmm. eyes, which are these, yeah. these, these agreements, these multilateral agreements between other countries for sharing uh, intelligence data. Uh, the five eyes being the big one, right? US, UK, New Zealand, yeah. Canada, Australia. Uh, nine eyes just adds five more and 14 eyes adds another five more um, the rest. <laughs> nearly the rest. But there are some notable exceptions, like, for example, Switzerland. Um, so ProtonMail, uh, something I've talked about in this uh, this before, but there are others as well. There are there are companies that because of these agreements, these multilateral intelligence agreements specifically house their data and their headquarters in countries with better privacy laws and. Um, or Well, more strict privacy laws, and I'm trying not to be too judgmental, but we're we're kind of <laughs> on the side of privacy here. So um, did, how does that, does that affect, all, I guess what we're hoping then, I guess, is that Switzerland will not sign one of these executive agreements and, and open up their kimono mm-hmm. like we're doing, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, another excellent question here, because it uh, also focuses on uh, who can really even challenge these data request agreements. And the one you brought up here, ProtonMail is a great example. Uh, so there's two channels we could work with here, as you exactly said. Uh, you know, would Switzerland really sign an executive agreement with the U.S. knowing ahead of time that it's probably a mechanism to grab and seize more data? You know, does Switzerland mm-hmm. want to be a part of that? Uh, and But another mechanism, interestingly enough, is that in these data transfer agreements, if uh If a company receives a data request, uh, they can indeed challenge it. They can mm. say, "We think this one goes too far. We think this one might break some laws that we have with the country where the data is stored um, we think there might be some overlapping jurisdiction where you know this doesn't work and anyways, when a company wants to do that, it has to enter into this uh This thing that, again, is annoyingly uh, referred to in the bill, but it is called a comedy analysis. Uh, Um, (laughs) C-O-M-I-T-Y.
0: Yeah, not C-O-M-E-D-Y, which you might argue for. (laughs) That
1: would be great. Um, The bill is complete with a bunch of terms and uh, definitions that, I'll be honest, were the first times I had ever uh, (laughs) been introduced to them. And so, anyways, a comedy analysis is a... uh, is a strange way to say let's balance the interests of both foreign governments involved in this situation, and there's a bunch of reasons uh, that a court would actually consider during such a comity analysis. Uh, whose best interest is it in? Uh, what you know? What rules actually would be broken? Uh, are there any concerns um, about? You know whether the company would be liable. Uh, there's things like that that are going to be basically judged, um, but we don't really know exactly how those factors weigh out. You know, there's no, there's nothing in the bill that says, oh, this factor is the most important, and this factor is less important, and this last one we're never really going to care about. It's sort of just a, a, a set of factors that. It's a, it's a test, you know, uh, it's an analysis and the judges who are given this analysis will probably be figuring it out for the first time ever, um, ex- you know, under the Cloud Act and that's also got its own uh, bit of difficulties and novelties to it. But again, Mail here could serve as a defender of privacy. They could. That is very true and it is something that we hope companies would do, but it is not something that we expect companies to do where we live. Because companies are not necessarily our civil rights defenders. Companies are not necessarily the stewards of the Constitution. Uh, companies have their own motivations and we completely understand that. But to have us rely solely on corporations and companies to you know, actually literally go to court for us, um, is untenable
0: now weren't there actually some pretty well-known companies that that came out vocally supporting this bill yeah precisely so there's like there's a
1: not what not only was it some pretty it's like the biggest companies uh it is microsoft it is apple it is google it is facebook and it is oath which we all formerly know as yahoo Mm. uh they got a name change recently these are, uh, these are the companies that handle the majority of the world's internet traffic. If these companies have already said that they support the Cloud Act, why or how much can we trust that they would fight the Cloud Act? You know, right. like it's just a, these are the companies that are going to be getting the most data requests because just... Logistically, they handle the majority, again, of, of of global internet traffic. So if these are the ones that are going to be the frequent targets, and these are the ones that said we support the Cloud Act, how much can we rely on these companies fighting the Cloud Act data requests? Uh, I don't imagine much.
0: Yeah, I was actually personally shocked to see Apple on that list because I, and, and Apple seems to be more about you know, user privacy than, than some of the mm-hmm. other companies that are basically advertising companies and I want to yep. know everything about you, but, and even so, some of these other companies that are, that, that, you know, Google and Facebook, they, they tend to have this attitude of, you know, n- nobody can see your data but us, you know, so, you know, you know, we will, we are stewards of your data. We will do, you know, we will protect it, but you know, we will fight tooth and nail to keep it, you know, your government away from it. But that, that, Mm -hmm. so I don't know, you can't speak for these companies, obviously, but is there, were they public about why they supported this thing? why do you, why do you speculate that they have come out in favor of this bill?
1: Yeah. So my speculation here is that the process that we spoke about a little earlier, this MLAT process, this, uh, coming together of privacy protections, When, you know, data is being requested across the border. The MLAT process is understandably a beleaguered process. Um, There are companies that have complained that uh, the MLAT process can take up to six months to clear. And so for a company like Google or Microsoft that uh, is receiving what I assume is very many such data requests Mm -hmm. probably on a daily basis Mm -hmm. they are seeing the MLAT process as something that at the very least can be improved upon can be streamlined Uh, and At the very most they see the MLAT process as something that could be improved upon so much that it is simply bypassed And again, that's what the Cloud Act does. It it bypasses the MLAT process. We've spoken quite a bit at EFF about improving the MLAT process because we think it is a good process that could be more efficient. But again, the Cloud Act doesn't improve the MLAT process. It bypasses it. And I imagine that for, again, a lot of these companies that are getting countless data requests, uh, I think they're looking for a solution more than anything. They're looking for a way to keep up with the probable Everest of data requests that they receive. And the Cloud Act does propose a solution, it's just a bad one.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay, so I wanna back up a minute because I meant to get Mm -hmm. to this a little bit earlier, but when we look at things like the FISA surveillance and things like that, there there Mm -hmm. are these supposed protections built into it called minimization. Um, and my understanding of that, and I'd like you to elaborate on this and see if it applies to the Cloud Act, is yeah. when you're, like for instance, NSA and the, and the CIA supposedly are not allowed to spy on U.S. citizens. That's what the FBI and the local, that, you know, federal law enforcement is for, supposedly. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when they when they hoover up all this massive amounts of data, they're supposed to. Basically, somehow redact or not look at the parts of those communications that have to do with the the American citizen, only the foreign citizen. I don't know how you do that in practice. but, yes. <laughs> but do, do those? Does minimization apply here as well? Like if the foreign governments come knocking and they they want to know about that, Lon- the London mm-hmm. police want to know about the Londoner doing stuff. Are they not allowed to look at stuff that involves the U.S. citizens or a non-London yeah. citizen?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a uh, couple of points here, just very high up there. Minimization uh, procedures are in the Cloud Act, and actually, interesting enough, there is a direct reference of the of FISA of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, but like you said here, uh, and I love this term that she said. You know, they're going to hoover up all this data. Uh, that that hoovering, that sweeping up of data. Uh, and we go to that example where the you know London police want a Londoner's Slack messages when they. When they get those messages, they're getting messages that are both sent to the Londoner and received by the Londoner. And so if that Londoner is speaking to any U.S. persons, those U.S. persons' messages are also going to be collected by London police. Now, the Cloud Act has a very specific rule. Foreign governments cannot specifically request data belonging to U.S. persons. So the London police cannot say, hey, I want David Reese's information because I'm a U.S. person and they're specifically not allowed to request that data, again, of a known U.S. person. Uh, Foreign government's not allowed to just peer into uh, our lifestyles and our private lives online. Uh, Good rule. However, again, because of the way the data is delivered, because messages both sent to and from a person are collected by the London police, by the foreign government police, whoever it should be. Look, we talk to people across our borders. We talk to people across right. our borders more than we ever have before because we have the technology to do that, because business is global now. Uh, I, I think about my past life, uh, in which I was a journalist, and I spoke, to, I was a legal affairs reporter. Every single lawyer I spoke to, every single source I had, was working basically for an office, uh, for a law firm that had offices across the globe. Mm. You know, there's, it was impossible for a lawyer to do a job, to do his or her job without speaking to someone outside of their borders. That's, it was practically impossible. So, back to this example, there are minimization procedures uh, when those US persons' messages are, you know, predictably going to be collected by London police. Uh, and those minimization procedures have to be at least uh, the same minimization procedures under FISA, and those procedures are things like, hey, we won't uh, we won't keep the data for too long for so <laughs> many years. But the way that that is uh, defined is uh, a little uh, odd because um, sometimes. The NSA likes to argue that uh, data isn't really being stored until it's been read first. So it's not like, hey, the messages are collected and the and the clock starts ticking. Okay, you know, messages collected day one, and mm. then five years from now that has to get swept out. No, messages could be collected day one, and if no one ever looks at it until you know day 365. Oh God, that clock hasn't been ticking. It just hasn't been ticking.
0: So it's like um, it's like Schrodinger's email.
1: yeah it's it's precisely that yeah uh so the minimization procedures okay uh that's the tiniest thing that could be asked for in this in this bill and you know we we don't like minimization procedures we don't think they go far enough in fisa the cloud act says hey you have to at least meet fisa (laughs) fisa doesn't do a good job so again the cloud act is being built on these um These foundations that they just they just don't go far enough in protecting user privacy.
0: So another question, if what is to prevent, if anything, some like weird reciprocity backdoor stuff where, you know, I don't know, let's say some New York, you know, police department is trying to investigate somebody and that it it involves a foreign person, uh, but they want the U.S. Part of that, Could they go to the London police and say, "Hey, why don't you uh, ask about the London guy?" And then, why, when you get the stuff for the U.S. guy too, why don't you just slip that back to us? I mean, it, I, how you would hope there's some person. I mean, would that data even, would, could you use that in court in a U.S. court? I mean, it, it, Ooh, yeah, great questions, uh, great tone because uh, these
1: uh, these questions should be asked. Like, surely that's not allowed, <laughs> uh, but, but spoiler alert, it is allowed in some way uh, uh. under the Cloud Act. Uh, let's say the foreign government has collected uh, emails from Google. Uh, let's switch it up a little bit. And um, the foreign government, you know, they weren't asking for a U.S. person's emails. They were asking for their own residence emails. And in those emails, uh, once they've been collected, once Google has delivered them, uh, it's up to that foreign government to do what they want with them, including if they find evidence of a crime that a U.S. person has committed, oh. you know, those those messages that can't be targeted but still end up in their, uh, in their hoovering of data, uh, that foreign government can go to the U.S. authorities and say, hey, we found some data about a, about a fellow in your nation, and uh, they're, they're committing a crime on U.S. soil, and so we're going to hand you over this data. And the U.S. authorities can then use that data as evidence oh, to file wow. criminal charges U.S. persons. During this entire process, the, uh, a probable cause search warrant was never sought. Uh, the Fourth Amendment was indeed bypassed. Uh, again, U.S. authorities are getting information on U.S. persons from U.S. companies, but not directly from them because there was an intermediary. And that intermediary was a foreign government that was allowed to get information because the Cloud Act allowed it. And that U.S. person could go to court, they could go to trial. And The evidence used against them was never collected under the fourth amendment and here's the real kicker they might never find out about it they might never find out that their constitutional right to privacy was broken in being charged with the crime and how they're being charged with crime and that's because the cloud act does not have a notification requirement there is no such hey uh, if someone is incidentally collected on, that's the that's the uh, milk toast term <laughs> that the NSA yeah. has used for uh, for you know when U.S. persons not targeted but still have their information collected, if their their messages are incidentally collected, there's no there's nothing in the CLAD Act that says they have to be uh, notified about that, um, which is wrong.
0: That's it, yeah. it's flatly wow. wrong. Um, okay, so. What is driving this? What brought this about? Is this is this been something on the back burner that the law enforcement agencies and the government have been wanting to do for years, and they finally got uh, an amenable Congress and President to get it passed, or was there some something recently that drove this, or maybe it was now that the FISA thing came back up, they're thinking, "Hey, why don't we apply this to other stuff too?" What what drove this? Yeah,
1: yeah. So one of the things that we know is driving this uh, is that there this. Example I've been using quite a bit, that you and I have been using this, uh, during the show, the Microsoft storing data in Ireland. That is a real example. That is something that is currently happening. And what happened in 2013 is the federal government got a search warrant. for e- they, they wanted emails of a Microsoft account holder. And Microsoft said, hey, those, uh, those emails are stored in Ireland, so we got to follow Ireland's privacy protection laws. And the U.S. government said, no, you don't. We have a U.S. search warrant. You're a U.S. company. Uh, we should be able to bypass that process. Uh, Microsoft appealed that decision. Uh, they, they, went to, they went to court and they lost. And they were, they were told to turn over the emails. They appealed that. They lost. And they appealed that. And then they won hmm. in the uh, Second District Court of Appeals. Um, and then that is now uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the US Supreme Court is expected this year, in 2018, uh, because they already heard oral arguments, they're expected in sometime around spring uh, or early summer to finally decide whether a US search warrant can apply to US companies in being compelled to retrieve information that is not stored in the United States. The Cloud Act, again, would moot those legal proceedings. Uh, once that executive agreement is created, uh, there would be, you know, with Ireland, the the whole legal dispute, which has very, very valid legal arguments to it, very valid arguments about our constitutional right to privacy, about where the Fourth Amendment applies and and where, for some reason, it wouldn't. Um, it gets rid of those legal disputes; it just washes them away. And so, the Cloud Act is a way to, I guess, again, here we say. It's a way to fix that problem, but again, it is a terrible fix.
0: is there Is there a glimmer of hope there? Is it possible that because this is a this is uh, brought up with the Supreme Court, is it possible they could actually uh, come up with some sort of ruling that would also beneficially tamp down the cloud act stuff? or is that am I just dreaming? Um That is an excellent question
1: that I really hadn't considered before, And it's probably you would assume, something that Ireland would consider if they were going to enter an executive agreement or if they were going to be proposed by the United States to enter an executive agreement, they'd say, hey, actually we're gonna hold off because we want our data privacy protection laws to be upheld, but in terms of playing out that scenario, I actually don't know. Um, And that's something that we always look for that glimmer of hope. We always look for that. Surely there's a responsible party here. if there is such a responsible party, uh, that's that's fantastic. That's always fantastic to hear. But again, playing out that scenario, I'm not entirely certain.
0: Now, we always we often hear the term right to privacy bandied about as if it's something that's in the Constitution. My understanding is that it's actually not really in there anywhere, but it was kind of an indirect thing that came down from some some rulings back in the like, early 1900s. What mm-hmm. what is the right to privacy? Does it exist and or what is it based on?
1: Oh, yeah. No, um, also great. Uh, The right to privacy, you are correct, is uh, an implied right. Uh, There's nothing specifically in the uh, Constitution. There's no word, the right to privacy. You know, that that phrase doesn't exist. Uh, But it comes much from our Fourth Amendment, which is, uh, you know, that we are free from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, And The Fourth Amendment itself comes from the fact that um, when we were building the United States from the ground up, uh, there were things called general warrants over in Europe. And general warrants applied to a broad amount of time and to entire like uh, households, Hmm. uh, domiciles if you want, uh, where the police could kind of go in and just ransack someone's house uh, because they had a general warrant and that general warrant was not specific. It was not for any specific crime. It wasn't, hey, we're looking for uh, cargo theft or whatever would be a popular mm-hmm. uh, crime back then. Uh, They're just like, yeah, we're just going to ransack a dude's house. Uh, if we find evidence <laughs> of a crime, we're going to use it against him, and uh, that was allowed. And but essentially, you know, the Fourth Amendment, as it has been tested uh, through many court cases and trials, uh, when we see where it is applied and where it isn't applied, uh, all of that kind of joins together to show that we have a constitutional right to privacy, an implied right to privacy. And um, again, it it is very much based in how we have interpreted the Fourth Amendment uh, throughout many years. Uh, Obviously, there are areas where, um, and sadly, there are areas where courts have decided the Fourth Amendment does not apply. A really quick example here is uh, border searches. Uh, Border agents can go through your luggage. That's it. Right. (laughs) That's that's it. We lost that one. (laughs) Um, But... That is allowed, and that has been allowed because court cases have considered it uh, specific, those specific cases. And so those are sort of seen as like loopholes or exceptions. Uh, when there is no exception, we have privacy.
0: Okay, so is to bring this to a close, let's talk about. You know, as concerned citizens, if we are kind of up in arms about this, you know, what we could start thinking about doing what sort of remedies, what sort of things we could do. The first thing that comes to my mind is end end encryption. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something we mm-hmm. all have control over. There are services that are, that that uh, are available right now for free to every to everybody if they want to use these things. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, with some things like Facebook and, and and proprietary systems, they may not be it may be hard to layer those on top of. But it, if everything was end end encrypted, wouldn't basically all this be moot? <laughs>
1: One would hope so uh, in that you know, we're, we're very pro-encryption at Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, we want strong encryption, we want people to use encryption, we believe it is a great resource for maintaining privacy. Um, unfortunately, uh, the US government has made a very strong push uh, for more than a couple of decades, uh, but definitely recently, I'd say in the past one to two years, Mm -hmm. uh, of making encryption weaker. Uh, That's really what they're asking for. Um, The FBI director, Christopher Wray, and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, over the past, I'd say, year and a half, have delivered several remarks uh, where they ask for something called, quote-unquote, responsible encryption. And what they believe that is is encryption that secures every single person who uses it, but also, by the way, if the FBI comes knocking, they can, they can just break into it. Uh, and the way that would be achieved is that um, the FBI would be given uh, sort of a special set of keys. Keys are always what we refer right. to encryption, right? A way to unlock encryption. So U.S. law enforcement, which includes the FBI, which includes the Department of Justice, which includes your local You know, police department, which includes the sheriff's department, which includes the thousands of local police departments in the United States, they would be given specific keys uh, into both unlocking devices like your iPhone or your Android or whatever phone you use, but also unlocking messages, encrypted messages. You know, these are the things that like uh, the app Signal uh, Mm or uh, Telegram, those are those are the services they provide. So U.S. law enforcement would have keys for the iPhone, they'd have keys for the, the Android phones, the many different models, they'd have keys for Signal, they'd have keys for Telegram, they'd have keys for every encryption service, they'd have keys probably for um, anyone that offers, possibly anyone that offers PGP uh, email, mm. uh, they'd have keys, they'd have a, they just have a, a ring of keys, that's it. Yeah. And. The reason that's such a bad idea is because uh, very simply any encryption uh, that has more access to it is less secure than encryption that doesn't. And the easy way to think about it is that if you have a door and that door has two locks on it, but if you use either key in those two locks, the door still opens... Mm-hmm. Uh, the very existence of that second lock and the very existence of that second key existing makes it a less secure door that's it right you don't want you don't want two keys being able to open a door you want one key right and US law enforcement is asking for two keys um, it's it goes hand in hand with what we're seeing like you said wouldn't encryption make all of this moot possibly so the US law enforcement is saying let's get rid of that too
0: right yeah so end and encryption have done properly would make most of this moot, but yeah the, the example i always like to bring up when people start talking about master keys and you know uh, they talk about encryption is the old, the tsa key thing so they mm-hmm. you know for when the tsa came along they were like okay you can't lock your stuff anymore because we have to be able to get in there but i'll tell you what here's a, here's a, here's a list of tsa approved locks and the reason they were tsa <laughs> approved locks is because they had tsa kept master keys for all these locks so the tsa yep. supposedly only the tsa could open up your luggage and look through it and then relock it and be on its way. And then somebody mm-hmm. doing a report on this published a picture of all seven or eight of these of these master keys as just like a, oh, oh this god. is a kind of a great way to introduce the article. Let's throw this picture up. Oh my god. And of yeah. course you could make a copy of a key from a picture of a key. And so with that one thing, they were it was all lost. All those TSA locks are immediately openable by anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a
1: that's a <laughs> I didn't know that example existed, but my God, is it fitting? And it's like, it's exactly what I assume would happen.
0: <laughs> yep. All right. So what else can we do c you know, obviously you write your congressman, these sorts of things, you know, which, uh, we always recommend that you do. And, um, uh, you know, what else, what else donate to the F obviously isn't something that, you know, if you can't do it yourself, mm-hmm. pay, you know, give money to the people who are doing it for you every day. Uh, what else beyond those, those things, what else might you recommend? What else could we do as concerned citizens?
1: Yeah, this is a particularly tough time because whenever a bill passes into law, which did happen as of yesterday, uh, again, like we said, um, Cloud Act was attached to the $1.3 trillion government spending bill, and President Donald Trump signed that bill yesterday uh, after you know a couple of sentences about complaining about the very bill that he was going to mm-hmm. sign. Um, so it's hard to feel like we are able to you know really move the needle once something has just passed into law. but. We are always, always capable of doing just that. We are always capable of still voicing our displeasure to our representatives, to our congressmen. And I do want to take a minute here and say that um, from the activity that we saw of supporters and readers, they spoke up. They really did. They sent thousands upon thousands of emails uh, to the House of Representatives and to the Senate and uh, our coalition partners, our other nonprofit partners, who also asked their supporters to, to write to their congressmen and women. Um, they also said they, they saw really serious interest on the Cloud Act despite being such a difficult and complex bill to understand. Uh, people really, really understood this one, and, and they acted on it. And so, again, you can always voice your displeasure. But another thing that we can start to think about is if these executive data, data agreements do do pass, and if these companies do start you know abiding by them and, and giving out information when being requested by law enforcement the same way we see these companies giving what are you know by now almost annual transparency reports mm-hmm. uh, about things like NSA uh, requests uh, where they're you know being told that under FISA they have to deliver information uh, we can demand that companies include information about how many cloud act requests they're getting yeah we can get we can demand that the companies say hey look we wanna see how many requests you're getting. We wanna see what crimes you know, mm-hmm. are being investigated because the crimes that are interesting to US law enforcement are not necessarily the exact same crimes that are interesting to law enforcement of another country. Uh, and we also wanna know if there's anything that companies are doing to make sure that once the data's been delivered, it's not being wrongfully used against other people. Um, we worry that, you know, data is going to be misused or abused for criminal prosecution uh, around the world. And that could be something we request of our companies that say, hey, look, we know that you give the data over, but do you have any sort of upkeep afterwards? Do you keep in touch? Do you keep track of that? Are you allowed to keep track of that? If not, have you tried to ask to be able to keep track of that? Uh, Things are, again, we just want, now that the Cloud Act makes these companies sort of our sole point, of, uh, of defending civil rights, we need a demand that they show how they're, de- you know, defending those civil rights.
0: Yeah. And as, uh, consumers, uh, I would, as I always do, cons- you know, uh, mm-hmm. tell people to vote with both their wallets and their, uh, and their ballots. Um, you know, as mm-hmm. you find companies that don't, you know, live up to the standards you want them to live up to in terms of privacy, find ones that do and pay them money if necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that goes, uh, we need to be doing more of that. We accept all these things as free. They're not free. we <laughs> are paying for it one way or another. Uh, and privacy is usually, yeah. usually the currency of the realm. All uh, right. Uh, thank you so, so much. This was a great talk and disturbing as it was, I think it's important for us all to understand these things and, and know what just happened so that that just laws, right. And, and so we can, their mm-hmm. laws can be, re- can be repealed. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that's our next step. Thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> and uh it's yeah to talk to you again
1: all right thank you so much Carrie. it's always a pleasure to be on this show um, thanks for being willing to dive deep deep into these issues uh, these are very nuanced and complex uh, pieces of legislation and uh, the fact that they're being you know tacked onto big spending bills that are over 2200 <sighs> pages long uh, it's it's robbery you know it's robbery of a standalone vote and it's robbery of nuanced conversation and debate um, we
0: deserve better I completely agree. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. And that's going to wrap up our show this week. Uh, Thanks again to David Reese for coming on and talking to us about this. Uh, This stuff is so important, and our privacy laws just keep getting eroded by the day. Um, We've got to strike a better balance here. And ever since, in my view, ever since 9-11, we've just been ruled by fear. And we've been letting this fear drive us to do things that are not good for this country in the long run. So anyway, that's my personal opinion, but this is really important regardless. It's all good that we understand these things and we know what's going on. And this particular uh, bill, the cloud act was really kind of slipped in in the dark of night. So I wanted to make sure we were all well aware of what was going on there. We talked a little bit about what you could do about that. Of course, as always contact your representatives. I'm not kidding. (laughs) You really need to do that. Uh, the best way to do it, honestly, is, uh, snail mail, uh, or a phone call. Um, you can do the digital online forums if that, you know, if that's the quickest and easiest way, and that's the only way you're going to do it, then by gosh, go do it that way. And that is much better than nothing. Make yourself heard. Uh, but as far as having the most impact, the people that actually take the time to write something out and send it in or. Uh, take the time to make a phone call and talk to somebody about that. Um, talk to the office and, and register your view on something. Uh, from, every th- from everything that I've read about activism, uh, that goes further and makes a bigger impact. I'd also like to uh, recommend that you read the book Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. Corey is also associated with EFF, and we had talked to him last year uh, on the show, if you recall. If you haven't heard that one, that's a great one to go back and listen to. He's a very, very fun to talk to and uh, very opinionated. Uh, but Little Brother is a fiction book, but it's hits very close to home, and it's not long. It's it's a very exciting to read. It's a good book in its own right. Uh, so if you like a good thriller, um, it's a great book to read. Uh, it's actually free if you go to Corey's website, Craphound. Uh, I think it's Craphound.net. Anyway, if you search for it, you'll find it. Um, you can actually download the free PDF if you want, or if you want to, you know, support the guy, uh, go to Amazon and buy the hardback. Shoot him a little money. That's what I did. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful book and it really drives home why all these things are so important and uh, it does a better job of, I think, making you appreciate, uh, the other side of this. Cause we tend to hear the law enforcement side of this stuff all the time. Well, you know, the bad guys are out there and if we can't break all this encryption, then, you know, we're in the dark. We can't capture the bad guys. Um, I beg to differ. Uh, there needs to be a better balance. And, uh, you know, what did we do before we had all this stuff? You know, we had to actually get out there and follow people. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. So uh, the point is, seriously, go check out this book, Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. That's another great read, and a, it's a good way to inter- introduce yourself to some of these concepts in a, in a way that's that really hits home. Uh, and if you like the book, recommend it to others as well. Tell your friends, you know, as always, you know, spread the word. The education and information and transparency are always the first step in all these things uh, so that we're all aware of what's going on. Um, and then we can decide what we want to do about that. All right. And I will stop it there today. We've got another new show coming up next week. There's a lot of things to catch up on, and we'll be talking about that next week. And until then, as always, don't get caught with the drawbridge down. Take care, everybody.